So what we know how to do and what we will do are often two different things. What's up, guys? My name is Tucker Bierman. I'm part owner of Refined Tile Design, located in Wilmington, North Carolina. We are a multi-million dollar small business that is learning and growing as we go. We started the Refining Exchange podcast in order to learn from other small business owners and leaders that have paved the way before us. All right, Paul Bauscher, thank you so much um, for taking some time to meet with me. And we were just chatting a little bit about your relationship with Jerry, my father, and, and kind of how you guys have done some business together. Just to kick us off, Bauscher Construction, I know that was a company of yours. And then you started and got involved into Insight Coaching, started that in an e-myth uh, learning that you were just telling me a little bit about. Tell me a little bit about um, what you're doing right now and then what Bauscher Construction did before you guys sold it. Sure. So my current role is the director of sales at Emeth Worldwide. And uh, so I manage a team of salespeople and a team of scheduling people. Uh, obviously, I do the sales, the outreach, the first point of contact for people coming to Emeth looking for help with their businesses. In addition to that, I am still an Emeth coach. So I still coach some clients as well. And um, I could have let that work go when I took on this role uh, leading a sales team, but I really enjoy still working with small businesses. So I didn't want to give that up. So I keep my hand in the pot. I think I have three or four clients right now that I work with, and I kind of keep it at a small. Well, I've been leading their sales team for a couple of years now. Before that, I started, I had my own, I was sort of a contractor for Emeth uh, under my own company called Insight Coaching. That started in 2015. I started taking clients in 2016, and I sold my construction business in 2020. So those two things overlapped by about four or five years where I was doing some coaching. I would say learning to be a good coach and then doing some coaching while I was still running the construction business. It was a really cool dynamic though to be working with, talking to, coaching other business owners and own a business of my own because I sort of sometimes had this little incubator like I could go try things on my own business. My yeah. people might have felt like uh, lab rats at times. But yeah. uh, the construction business I got, I mean, I was almost born into it basically. My dad was in construction. His dad was a union carpenter, but I was the owner and operated that business for 24 years. So big chunk of my life. I'm 53 now. So it's, you know, a little yeah. more than half my life was spent in the, the residential construction business. So did you start that business or did your dad... Uh, my dad really started it. He was in business and um, gosh, I worked with him. Uh, we literally have a photograph of me in a diaper with a hammer in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> so it, like when I say I've been in it my whole life, I've literally been in it my whole life, but maybe you can, uh, you can send me that picture. We can use that for like the, your profile <laughs> picture for this podcast. I think that'd be pretty good. <laughs> uh, I'll think about that one. All right. All right. <laughs> no, that's cool. So you grew up in the business. Did you go to college? Did you just start working out of high school with your dad? Worked all through grade school, high, you know, middle school, high school, and even in college for a while, I still worked for him a bit. Okay. Um, my dad was a German carpenter. That's what he loved to do. That's what he loved to be. And never really wanted to run a business, just wanted to work for himself. So I started early on, like in my high school days, doing things like project estimating and that sort mm -hmm. of thing for him, because it was all the stuff that he really hated doing. Yeah. And I had brothers in the business too, who didn't, didn't really want to do those things either. And, and I... And I had an interest in him and took him on. And then uh, it's kind of the way I paid the rent, if you will, when I was in college, because I lived in his house. He had a two family house. And I lived in part of that house. So like as long as I was in school and helping him out, then I didn't have to pay any rent. So that worked out really good. That's a good deal. What uh, at what point did you like when you went to college, were you like, hey, I'm going to take over my dad's business when I get out? Or were you kind of thinking about the other things at that point? 
Exact opposite. I watched uh, him doing what he was doing and I went away to school thinking I am never doing this. I am never yeah. <laughs> going to in business. I am not going to work all day, bid all night. That was the view I had of it at that point in my life. So I thought no way I'm going to own a business or run a business. Wow. So then at what point did you, did you start working for another company out of college or did it kind of transpire at that point where you did come back? Ironically, I was a bit of a shy, introverted young person out of college. I got a job in sales of all things, but it was more of an estimating job than a sales job. I was always good with numbers. And so I, I worked for a window company estimating, uh, you know, historic window projects and selling them to a network of dealers that we had around the country. And um, I think maybe that's how I got myself by it because it was all remote sales. So I, it was over the phone. It was dealer network. Someone else had already set up. So I just called on them and processed orders really, but I got the bug and I missed the building business. And so I did get back into it working for someone else. I worked for a home builder for a couple of years, two, three years, didn't really like the new home building game. So I went to work for a remodeling contractor. That was kind of my roots. That's where I grew up mm -hmm. and worked for him for about a year and a half. My dad was at a point where he was saying, I'm going to retire. If you want to take over the business now would be the time. Of course, I already told you I had no interest in that. Yeah. But I remember a conversation with my wife where she, I was basically the GM at this company I was working for. And when I started there, the guy didn't even know what his margins were. He didn't know his margin needed to be. Yeah. And I spent all this time straightening things out, getting him profitable. You know, I remember the conversation where my wife said, you're basically running his business. Why don't you run your own? And that was, I guess, maybe the only nudge I needed because I said, you know what? I think I'll give this a crack. Wow. That was the aha moment. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. So talk to me about, so you, you said your brothers didn't have maybe necessarily like a huge interest in the business side of things. Were they involved with your dad's business at this point working? At one point or another, all of my brothers have worked with my dad. At that point in time, my younger brother, Jay, um, mm -hmm. was working with my dad as well. Also an excellent craftsman to this day. But also at the time, you know, running a business wasn't something he really wanted to do. No one, no one liked all the paperwork, the business side, right? The selling and the, and the taxes and all that junk. I wouldn't say that I loved it, but it was something that I found interesting. I mean, it sounds like it was an easier process than most. I've talked to some many other business owners and I'm sure you see that kind of family lineage. And a lot of times, more often than not, from what I've seen, it's more of a rocky kind of transition of, of the sale and what your dad's title and role is going to be. Was it simple for you guys? Was it, hey, you know, come in for a year and then take over? Or was it a little bit rockier than I'm making it out? You know, mostly it was simple. I can remember talking to my dad and saying, I want to take the business over, but I just have two conditions. I don't want any partners because I didn't, I wanted to preserve my brother's relationships with my brothers. And I <laughs> said, dad, you can't tell me what to do. That was rooted in the fact that he had some, remember, he's a, he's a German craftsman. He doesn't like to sell. So he had some repeating accounts for some commercial work which I never had any interest in. And I always felt like they took advantage of him and they weren't fair with him. And, you know, if it kept him from having to go sell something, then he liked it. So I knew I was going to ditch those people. Mm -hmm. And so my words to him were, you can't tell me what to do. He, of course, said, well, why would I want to tell you what to do? And I said, well, you'll see. <laughs> yeah. So the first year was pretty bumpy because as I started pulling the plug on those people, he thought I was a little nuts. By this time, because of other people I'd worked for, I'd built some good relationships in the architectural community. Mm -hmm. So I had some architects who followed me when I went out on my own. And, you know, I guess just being fortunate or maybe seeds I planted in those relationships came back and we pretty much kind of hit the ground running. You know, the rest is history, as they say, it took off from there. 
That's awesome. So you guys were doing um, residential carpentry work. Were you guys doing remodels at that point? So my dad did mostly like kitchen and bathroom model stuff, basements, mm -hmm. not really ever additions. It was mostly, uh, you know, him and my brother uh, working. So they didn't have the resources to really take on bigger projects. Um, the work I had done for other people was all focused on larger scale residential projects. So pretty good size residential additions and renovations, that kind of thing. Uh, so there was a bit of a transition as we moved from being like a kitchen and bath company that they had to something where we were doing much larger scale projects. Gotcha. That's cool. So kind of peeling back the layer on that first like three years of you taking over and what were some of the anxieties that you had? Like, did you have full faith in your vision or were there doubts? Were there fears there? I'm learning so much about myself in the first couple of years of owning a business. It's amazing. And my wife thinks I'm crazy too. So like, what were you learning in the first couple of years that you're like, gosh, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. So my wife might think I'm crazy still today, but she was fully supportive of me uh, jumping out on her own. I don't know if she had more blind faith than I had confidence, but I think anybody who said they just had full faith in their vision and no doubts is probably lying. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a new child and I'm looking at a little baby's eyes going, oh crap, I'm going out on my own and I've got to keep health insurance and someday yeah. you're going to want to go to school and go to college and all these things. And I don't know, maybe I was uh, more brave than I give myself credit for, but certainly I had my own fair share of doubts about, you know, will this work? Yeah. So <clears throat> what, what were some of those things just as a, from a business owner, leader perspective that you did learn in those first three years? Uh, you know, the smartest thing I did, my mom, I, I credit my mom because she's, I always used to joke that she could take a nickel and squeeze it so hard it would turn into a dime. And she was tighter than two coats of paint. And so was my dad, but they could watch every nickel. And my mom taught me a lot about budgeting and living in your yeah. means and all those things. So probably the smartest thing I did right out of the gate was I started building budgets. And I, I spent hours and hours. I can remember sitting at an old drawing table with a calculator and a, and a ledger and developing pricing for our work based on yeah. real numbers and then creating a trackable system. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that I knew the numbers and I knew that we were, because I can remember just thinking, God, how do I know even what to charge here? How do I know yeah. if I'm bidding this job right? Am I going to make money on the other side of it? And that was a big insecurity. And it made me really put my head down and, and start to dig in and figure out number structures that would tell me those things. I gotcha. And were you responsible for hiring and managing people too? Everything. It was yeah. me, you know, that, that first like day one was me, my dad and my younger brother. That was, that was it. Wow. Were you guys subbing a lot out or did you guys end up, how many people did you end up bringing in-house by, you know, the, after the first couple of years? So that was a fairly big shift. My dad and brother did a lot of stuff themselves. They're a very talented couple of guys and they would just do a lot of stuff themselves. But when we started doing bigger projects, it just wasn't feasible. Yeah. So we had a big transition over that first couple, three years of going where we employed carpenters. We would do all in-house carpentry work, uh, but then we pretty much subbed out everything else that we did from that point on. Again, I had built a pretty good Rolodex, we used to say, of contractors that I knew, trusted, liked. So it was a pretty seamless, pretty seamless transition other than just the managing of projects that now we weren't, you know, we, meaning our own people weren't necessarily standing there looking at them all day long. 
Gotcha. Wow. That's awesome. So did you set up your brother and your dad as like supervisors, site supervisors kind of thing, where they would just kind of QC a lot of those jobs? We hired a guy named Tom who ended up working for me all the way up to the time that we sold the business. He retired, which was wonderful. He's another, just an awesome human being. Tom was the first person I hired and he never left. It was great. Wow. But um, I wish all the rest of my hires were that good. I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> So he became kind of our second crew lead. And my younger brother really was a crew lead at that point. So they were our eyes and ears. They would kind of manage what was happening at the job site. And I was doing all the sales, the pricing, and I was sort of doing the overall project management, all the client communication. I would schedule all the subs and just communicate with those guys on site. So I was wearing a lot of hats. Yeah. It's funny you say wear a lot of hats. Yeah. My dad, I remember when I was in high school, vividly walking in and I think they're still there somewhere, but walking in for one of his morning huddles and he had 50 just blank, you know, white hats on it. And he just started labeling each hat. And you know how it is when you, when you hire employees in a small business, it's like, Hey, you know, what's my job title? And, you know, I want to be responsible for a couple of things. And you know, it's a small business. You wear a lot of different hats, Monday, one hat, Tuesday, five hats kind of thing that resonates a lot. So talk to me about, as you guys started to scale the business. Talk about the hiring process. That's something that I know a lot of people struggle with. You alluded to how challenging it can be. Obviously a couple of successes sprinkled in there is, is huge, but what, what was your hiring process like? How did you, how did you vet people and where did you see success when you brought new people on? So I look back into my early years and I kind of cringe thinking about what I know now and what I was doing then. It was, it was sort of like potluck gambling, you know, yeah. old dice. It was, I was a terrible, I was terrible at interviewing people. I did what I recognize now as a big mistake that most business owners make. And I interviewed for skills. I was trying to find out that they know how to do this. Would they do the work well enough that, you know, my brother wouldn't crack him over the head for doing shoddy work because he might back then and when he was yeah. in you know, so I was hiring for skills and I didn't really have it on my radar to think a lot about values and think a lot about culture fit and all those things. It was just, I knew carpentry, I knew construction. Can this person do the job? And that was a big part of my focus. And as I look back, you know, the old saying now, of course, that I didn't know then is we hire people for what they can do and fire people for who they are. And as I look back over my career, that's exactly what happened. I don't think I ever fired anyone because they just couldn't physically do the work that they were hired to do. Yeah. It was more that they just, you know, couldn't show up on time or they couldn't be the human being that agreed with the values that we wanted portrayed on our projects. That's really good. So did you, did you end up shifting that? I mean, did you start to, and I guess this is a two-part question because I'm, I'm hearing you say this and I'm struggling with this, or we're struggling with this in our businesses. As you start to hire cultural fits, did you create training plans for them? Calling what we did a training plan would be making it sound more formal than it actually was. Um, what really worked for us over the years was having, we, I was fortunate enough, I mentioned Tom already that I hired, I'd hired a couple more guys who were seasoned, good, solid human beings, good craftsmen, family men, cared about what they did and they fit. So long and short of it is I got lucky. I had, I had a crew of some good guys who Probably just intuitively and instinctually, we we found each other and and it fit. Yeah. Uh, wasn't as on purpose as I would like to say it was. But what really worked for us over time was I had I had the benefit of some of those guys, and we, I would then hire people and put them with them and have them mentor yeah. them and teach them. And I always aimed for what I call a self healing culture, like meaning those good guys would spew out the bad guys. And so I tried really hard just not to bring in anybody that would wreck the system. And then I'd let those guys mentor them and teach them and train them and tell me, yeah, he's a keeper. We'll keep him around. Or you know what? He probably ought to go. Yeah. Uh, and so it was, it was informal, but I think I 
kind of was just lucky and fortunate enough. That's really cool. Talk me through the sale process, how you got there. You know, how long were you thinking about it? Did it kind of just stumble upon it and just kind of the opportunity presented itself? Walk me through that. Well, so sometime in the 90s, I don't remember when I read the E-Myth Revisited. That's, that was the start of my relationship with E-Myth. I read that book and I started realizing I am not running a business anything like this. Like I'm not, this whole business revolves around my ability to make everything happen. And, you know, when you're 29 or 33 instead of 53, your ego gets a little stroked by that sometimes. By the time you're 43, you're like, I'm freaking tired of doing everything. Yeah. So I tried for a long time to get to implement a lot of that stuff. It put structure in place in the business so that it would operate outside of me. We hit a ceiling because I was the bottleneck of the business. Yeah. Yeah. And when I finally started delegating out the running of our projects. And that was a hard thing to let go of because I was so used to managing by site, meaning I was at the site. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I put just thousands of miles on trucks every year because I would be everywhere going on sales calls, being at every job. So until I started saying, okay, wait, how do I replace me out there? How do I trust, get it so I can trust some of these guys? And that was a first big step. And then guys like Tom and my brother, Jay, they began taking on more and more of the management role on the site. And to my pleasure and surprise, they were interested in doing it and they did a pretty darn good job of it. And so that freed me up and we grew a little more beyond that. And then of course, I kind of believed the industry junk, which is nobody can sell in your business like you can. Yeah. And so I held on to selling for quite some time and not to be sound arrogant, but I got pretty darn good at it. And so it got harder and harder for me to imagine removing myself from that role in the business until I finally just said, it's got to go. I got to, I got to stop doing this. And that was twofold. One, I was tired of doing it. Two, I was tired of being out in the evenings. Uh, yeah. You know, the joke is the commercial world works between nine and five and the residential world works between five and nine. Yeah. And, you know, I got tired of not being home and having dinner with my kids and my family. And so I said, I got to do something about this. So I finally spent about a year building rehashing my estimating system so that it was in a language and organized in a way that someone else could use it effectively, I thought. And I hired somebody, her name is Debbie. I won't share her last name to protect the innocent uh, or guilty. <laughs> Debbie was one of the most fabulous hires I ever made, but she had a, an interior design background and I spent the better part of eight months teaching her my sales system and my estimating system and within a year after that, she was out selling me easily. She was phenomenal at it and the wow. system worked. And I can still remember the feeling. I don't remember the date, but I remember the moment when a project was sold, designed, built, finished, paid for, and I never met the people and I'd never been to the job. Wow. And that was an extremely satisfying moment for me because I had just figured out how to build a business that could build a project without me having to be involved in it. That's so cool. And that, that was exciting. That's probably was the first big step towards, I never really thought about selling a business from the perspective of, oh, that's a goal. I thought about it from the perspective that that will be a marker that will tell me that I've built a business that isn't relying, it doesn't have me at the center of it, me doing everything. Yeah. And, you know, I just more and more believed that that was the mark of a business owner. It wasn't my ability to do things. It was my ability to enable a team to do things. Wow. That's really good. Gosh, just to relate, I'm 29, growing a new business, trying to, failing a lot having some, some economic probably help 
too, which is nice. You know, we, we kind of reached our first milestone hitting X amount of dollars. And we were able to do that with two people, myself and, and one designer. And then, you know, as we're trying to grow to that next milestone, we've hired five more people. And I'm trying to remind myself constantly every day that the people are the ones that are going to grow the business. I'm not, but it is so hard. And I'm, you're a business coach now. We can talk about this. It's so hard to, to, like you said, remove yourself from the bottleneck. And I heard you say this and just, I guess, affirm that I'm hearing you correctly is you just got to the point of desperation where you were like, I can't, I can't be the one in this responsible for all of this anymore. And you started to delegate. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I don't know if I reached a point of desperation as much as just a something I realized in myself years ago. And I just had to learn to accept is that uh, I can't be in one place for too long. Yeah. Not physically, like I've lived in the same house for 20 years, but <laughs> I can't be in the same place mentally for too long. I've got to move on to the next thing. And so I reached a point of like I'd been doing the same thing for too long. And I thought I have to do something different. This is driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. And that's when I, in 2015 is when actually your dad is the one who said, you need to go to this E-Myth event because I think you'd be awesome at this. And I said, okay, Beerman, you're kind of crazy, but you've had worse ideas. So I, I went to it. That's, <laughs> that's true. So that's how I made the, I had been starting to do some things through Nary and some other people had asked me to help them with their businesses. So I was sort of dabbling yeah. and doing some consulting coaching anyway. So I went to this thing with EMIP and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. It's something I can dabble in. I don't have to jump in full time. And just the more I did it, the more I engaged in it, the more I learned then my business became that project. So in 2015 was like, now the business is this project that I'm going, oh, let me see if I can actually do this. Let me see if I can build this so that it'll operate without me. And, you know, I spent the last couple of years doing like weekly staff meetings with my key people. And other than that, I, I was not doing an active operational role in the business. And that felt fantastic. Now the sale was something I had on my horizon I lucked out kind of with COVID was almost like a double-edged sword. It was a horrible thing for all of us to go through, but it created a conversation with someone that was like, you know what I'm thinking about just because I had gotten so engaged in coaching. I knew it's where my heart was. Yeah. I was just kind of getting ready to, to be out of the industry. So one thing led to another and we came to an agreement that I was able to sell the business right as COVID was starting. You know, of course the industry's gone gangbusters after I've looked back a couple of times, like maybe I should have waited two years first. <laughs> I was going to say two years too soon. No, but I'm no, sure. It's the right choice. It allowed me to completely immerse myself in the coaching work. That's good. Well, and, and we can talk about this too, is you had people like community within, you know, my dad and some other guys that luckily I've gotten to talk to a couple here recently, how important it is to put people around you with a wealth of knowledge in the industry, because you're able to try things, you're able to get different perspectives. I, you know, I see a lot of guys that are heads down doing so much in the business that they never really get any perspective and any, you know, encouragement like, Hey, try it this way. What was that like for you to have kind of some peers that were encouraging you through that? You know, it's a double-edged sword, Tucker. I had a lot of involvement for about six or seven years with Nary, and that was on the whole good. Your dad and I did a lot of work on the board Yeah, Nary. Uh, we had a lot of fun, did a lot of fun events and educational stuff with Nary. Here's the double-edged sword. Remember that everyone's having their experience. They're not having your experience, meaning they see it from their perspective. And so there can be this sort of pervasive, this is the way it is. The industry is just like this. It's always been this way. And this isn't unique, by the way, to construction or trades or it's yeah. every industry. It's human nature. So this is the way it is. And so you can get caught up in that in your community to where you just start to accept that those beliefs. 
And those become blockers for you because if you accept that these things are just, it's what they are, then you don't challenge them. And so one of the things that's been so great about uh, my relationship with your dad is he and I are very different people. I'm very much, let's vet this thing and see if it'll work. One time on a call, he said, hey, Bowser, what's my greatest strength and my greatest weakness? And I said, well, your greatest weakness is you're ready, fire, aim. He's like, okay, I take that. I said, and your greatest strength is you're ready, fire, aim. Because a lot of things get tried yeah. because he's just willing to take a crack at it. Right. Yeah. And I'm an, I can be an over planner. And so he would challenge me to not get start thinking about whether something was possible before we even tried it. So we tried a lot more things because of him. And I like to think more of them worked because of me. You know, my wife used to say, you know, Jerry's the yin to your yang. That's you guys are the perfect odd couple. And um, <laughs> so you need people like that in your life. You need steadying people in your life. But you also need people like your dad, who for me was the guy who was, we could sit and just challenge the status quo and challenge what we thought we knew and challenge each other in that way. Yeah. Uh, and that's so important to be able to get somebody to pull you outside of what you think is real. And it might mm -hmm. be real, but yeah. you've got to be willing to step away from it long enough to at least question it and challenge that thought. Because if you don't, that's how you get stuck on the treadmill. Oh gosh, that's really good. And a couple of years goes by and you didn't even realize what happened. Queuing into Emith and Insight Coaching, which is your business now. What advice would you give to someone like me? How important is business coaching for young entrepreneurs, young business owners, business owners in general? Talk me through that. I can't imagine, you know, whenever anybody says, you know, what would you do differently in your business? I always look back and go, I'd get a coach sooner. You know, that sounds self-serving as a coach today. But as I look back without someone, look, if we all did what we know we need to do, we'd all eat healthy and go to the gym every day. Yeah. But the truth is we all don't do that, even though we know we need to do it. So what we know how to do and what we will do are often two different things. And it's very often the beliefs that we carry around that keep us from executing on that or the blind spots that we have that we just can't see about ourselves. And so having, whether it's a coach or a colleague like your dad is for me still today, someone in your camp who's willing to, your, your dad used to always say, Bowser, I like being around you because you're a truth teller, you'll tell me the truth even when it hurt. You need somebody like that. You need somebody that's going to tell you the truth or say, or ask you the question that might sting a little bit. Coaches are good for that. A good coach will do that for you. It's hard sometimes to find that without hiring a coach because, you know, your friends want to be friends. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to piss you off. They don't want to say something that might hurt your feelings. But if you can find a mentor, a friend, a colleague, hire a coach, somebody that will be a mirror and reflect back for you what's going on. It's priceless. You know, I don't care how old or young you are. Do it as soon as you can do it. That's really good. That's awesome. Well, just to kind of bring this home and, and close it out, you work with a lot of business owners. You've been there. You've gone through the entire kind of life cycle of a business. What's one thing that you've learned here recently or you've seen implemented with some of your guys' small businesses that you're working with that you're like, gosh, if I was you know, 24, 25, when I took over my dad's business, I wish I knew that. What would that be? Hmm. From a tactical perspective, educate yourself about the financial side of your business. It took me years to do that. I didn't, I came from a conservative German family where we didn't talk about money. And so I went into business and didn't talk about money. And that's like owning a car and not talking about stopping for gas, because you are going to be screwed at some point in your career. Yeah. So take the time, stick your nose in the financial side of your business and stick it in there, no matter how boring, no matter how uncomfortable it is. 
no matter how ugly it is, if you don't want to look at, I've had business owners say, I know it's ugly, so I just don't want to look. Sorry, but finance is like your health. You can only ignore it for so long and it will grab your attention. So do what you got to do if you're not already somebody who's happy about the financial side of the business. Just get in there and learn what it tells you because it tells you amazing stories about what's going on in your business. From a personal perspective, recognize that, like I said about the gym, I tell people about coaching all the time. At Emeth, we have a great program and we have great coaches, but it's like joining a gym and hiring a personal trainer. They can't do the push-ups for you. You still got to show up and do the push-ups or you're not going to get fit. And wanting to do something, knowing you need, I've had countless people when I do workshops or speaking engagements where people say, yeah, I've heard all this before. And my standard question now to them is, then why haven't you done something with it? Because the truth is, and I just said this to a group of contractors in New York, none of this is sexy, right? We want it to be Elon Musk. That's sexy. He's building electric cars. Okay. But building those electric cars profitably, dependably, reliably, and delivering them on time is not sexy. <laughs> and whatever you're doing in your business, the fix to whatever frustration you have requires some behavioral change on your part, probably. And at worst, behavioral change in your people, probably, which means habit change. So somebody said in a meeting recently, we're in the business of transformation. And I said, that sounds so fun. But really, we're in the business of habit change. You get up every morning, Tucker, and you do the same things every morning. I almost guarantee it. By the time you walk out the door to go into your office or walk to your office, if you're like me and work at home, you've done the same 25 things every single frigging day. Yeah. Try changing that once. And see how hard it is. Oh, man. And so it's when an employee stuff. calls you with a problem and you jump out and fix the problem, instead of enabling that employee through the creation of a system or training for that employee to solve that problem, you perpetuate that problem coming back to you. That's a habit that has to change. Wow. That's really good. I mean, my mind is kind of like racked around that right now because there's so many habitual things that we do. You know, we're always attracted to what's easy and what's comfortable, right? I can't wait to listen to this because there's so much to unpack there. That's really good. Having people in your corner that are challenging you to think outside of the box, having people that encourage you too, you know, and then also thinking about what we do every single day and how it leads us. If we're frustrated with things, it's not, it's probably not dumb luck. It's probably a course of those 25 actions each morning that has led us to the result. And to be able to unpack that, to kind of challenge some of those things, change some of those things, think about them differently. That's really, really good. Well, that's where the challenge comes from, because most of the time, whatever we're looking at that's frustrating us is a symptom. It's a symptom of something. And it takes courage sometimes to dig deep enough to find what that something is, right? It's like, yeah. I don't want to look down there because I'm going to find something I have to change that I may not want to change. So I don't want to look at that because if I want to get fit, I've got to change my morning routine that includes coffee and a Danish, right? Yeah. But I love the Danish. It makes me feel good when I eat it. So if I look too closely, I've got to stop eating the Danish. I don't really want to do that. Yeah. Really example, but this is what goes on for us. There's a phrase that all growth happens in discomfort. So get ready to be uncomfortable. That's really good. Well, Paul, thank you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And, and I, again, I can't wait to listen to this again. There's a lot of good stuff. So thank you. Seriously, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you guys enjoyed, please give us a like or share the refining exchange with someone that could find this valuable. We're looking forward to learning and growing with you guys on the next one.